0: Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out people of product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself.
1: But I think that's the same thing with business, right? Like I, I all, I look at, the, I don't look towards calibration or partnership. I look at everything through the lens of calibration and partnership. So even like calibration is not a destination, right? Anytime uh, a vision, like I want to say your culture becomes a goal. Like you have this distance, sorry, has this distance that creates distraction, right? So if it's like, for me, I'm like my family values, one of the things we say is generosity is a lifestyle. Generosity is not a goal. Like I'm not like oh, this is when I give.
0: Welcome to Innovation and Leadership where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show I've got Jedediah Thurner. Hey man, thanks for doing this. It's
1: excited to be with you man. Honored.
0: So you do a lot of things, you help a lot of people. I'm really excited to have you as part of this, the Orphan Myth mini series that we're doing here. Can we start with tell people a little bit about what you do during the day and then the role that you guys are playing with, with Orphan Myth here.
1: Yeah. What I do during the day, I think, and and we kind of shared this when we connected right off the bat, but you know, I've, I've kind of redefined my life and it's super simple. What I do every day is just help everyone around me win. Um, and sometimes that looks like rescuing kids from human trafficking. Sometimes that looks like you know, providing hundreds of thousands of people with free medical aid or dental treatment. Sometimes that looks like jumping on an innovative podcast and talking to this incredible audience. Sometimes that looks like raising capital for strategic initiatives. So for me, I I think the why is way more significant than the what and how. And that why has just been, how do I help everyone around me when and I think a lot of that has come from the journey of going, I want to make a living, no, I want to make a difference. You know I think once you've made that living or you finally get that house or that title or that platform and the things that you thought success would look like and you get to that mountaintop and realize there's no one there with you because you didn't help anyone along the way, you have to go journey back down, you know that mountain from making a living to now making a difference. And uh, that's kind of led us to, you know, what we're doing, you know, with the Orphan Myth campaign and really our domestic role as an organization, we've we really spent most of our time in developing nations. Uh, but in the last few years, feel like we got reassigned to America and specifically right now, Los Angeles County and Southern California. And the exact same data that drove us to doing what we're doing is the same data that has really been the mechanism behind Orphan Myth and that commitment to say, hey, man, most people just don't know what's really going on. And it's time to make sure the world and and really america knows and uh, that's kind of what we've been up to. And
0: so I know you're involved with a number of organizations. When you when you first introduce yourself or what like what's the main website that you hand out?
1: Yeah, it's such a, (laughs) there's not a main, that's so funny. Right right now I'd probably use, I'd probably use the words love has no limits, you know, lovehasnolimits.com for those of you that are listening that you could go to, but really the the reason why it's not, it's not like, Hey, there's just one place to go to. We are not that traditional uh, humanitarian organization or philanthropic and, you know, organization. We're really what we consider just a collaboration infrastructure. You know, so we actually come into a nation or to a city and really do a few things. One, what problems need to be solved that have not been solved yet? Two, what's the unifying narrative? Like regardless of race or faith or power or position or social status or zip code? What would be the unifying narrative that everyone you know could be a part of? And then really we stand as that collaborator behind the incredible individuals that are already doing it, but maybe just don't have scope or don't have scale uh, or don't have awareness or don't have strategic partnership. And we really are that collaboration infrastructure. So we'll walk in and stand between a president of a nation. We've worked with many presidents, but we'll stand with the, you know, the private sector and their excellence and efficiency. And then the militant manpower of, you know, faith communities and NGOs, and then, you know, the creative institutions and media arts and entertainment. So we just started this collaboration. So really it depends on what we're working on then. So it's not just, Hey, it's about water. It's about orphans or it's about human trafficking. It's like, what's that unifying narrative for what we're focusing on. So right now, because it is LA, it would be love has no limits. And uh, really that's our American force of what we're trying to facilitate here. Uh, but they, yeah, thanks for asking. It is confusing for a lot of people. I usually just tell people on an airplane I'm a humanitarian. And then depending on how they respond determines what journey or what rabbit hole I, we get to take them down. And um, and
0: what are the main international ones that you would send people to if they want to look at, you know, the work you do? Yeah. So if
1: you were to go to, you know, one nation, one day, one nation, one day dot com would, would kind of give some. Context to what we've done in developing nations. You know, we've we've done this campaign in about four nations now, and we've seen about nineteen thousand volunteers mobilized from forty-three different nations and probably seven to eight hundred different organizations. They've all given up their logos, their labels and their egos, you know, to be a part of a movement that's so much bigger than themselves. And we've we walk into these nations and basically figure out in Honduras, it was, you know, corruption and violence. I'd had the murder capital of the world. Our last big campaign was in Peru. And that unifying narrative was really domestic abuse. It wasn't just that they were beating and abusing their women. It was what they were doing to them. I mean, tying them up behind trucks and dragging around the streets, you know, throwing tires around their body and lighting them on fire. It was so extreme. No one could help, you know, no one could figure it out. And so we just said, Hey, there's a way that we could actually bring a solution to this, you know, through uniting people to be a part of the solution and not just pay attention to the problem. But that kind of just gives a quick picture of what's been going on behind us. And yeah, I think in, in these crew. four nations we've given about, we've given about 700,000 plus people free humanitarian or dental treatment or a new home, We've reached about 1.3 million high school students with what we call a dream campaign right in their public high school, and uh, there's a lot of been a lot of fun stuff that we've been a part of. Go check it out if you're listening. I love
0: it. You know, Peru is interesting for me. We so I've got a brother-in-law that grew up in Peru. And, You know, he was wow. in Lima during the days of Shining Path. You know, you know the terrorist bombs wow. going off, yeah. and they they get, were able to get to Canada. And you know, where my parents helped start a nonprofit in Canada that was helping support aftercare facilities and some orphanages there. And then wow. we ended up getting involved at child rescue to help build an aftercare facility kind of by in Cusco outside of Machu Picchu. Yeah. No, and wow, um, it's interesting being a part of orphan myth and hanging out with Lindsay and Joe and everybody and, and learning more about like questions I didn't ask when we were doing some of those campaigns about like, you know, it, it's kind of a good situation compared to some orphanages where the, that one's more of like a real family environment, kind of right. a situation that like, the, the workers actually live there on site with them full time and, and stuff. Definitely. And, but, but, you know, it makes me ask questions about, it makes me realize I didn't ask questions about placements. And, you know, I made assumptions about these kids having no parents alive that I didn't ask about, you know what I mean? And stuff like this. And so wow. hanging out with all of you guys makes me actually think of things we've done in the past and what we could have done better and what we want to do better going forward. And, you know, we've, we've child rescues help fund some other organizations working with the the government US and Peruvian of catching some Americans who are unfortunately harming kids down there and really grateful to to be able to get those kids in a better situation you know it's well, an interesting honest, country yes
1: i i didn't i didn't even know like when we have talked to so many different people a part of you know really or that we're onboarding to this orphan myth campaign and then our domestic you know representation of it which is really love has no limits is a domestic expression of really this big global narrative around orphan myth but i look at everyone and i said hey two three years ago i never talked about child welfare you know, in America, at least I never talked about the foster care system. We just, when we do any type of outreach or any type of initiative, we want to do it out of great information, not simply great ideas. Like at the end of the day, we actually have data now, like a decade ago, 20 years ago, people that were trying to do any good, right. In any context, really, were doing it out of a great idea, but not necessarily did they have great information, but we want to do all of any type of humanitarian expression. We wanted what we call as intelligent outreach, right? Is it data driven? Or is it, is, it, is it just simply dream driven? I have a dream, but it's like, what's the data? And so for us, when we looked at Los Angeles, right, we, we, we looked at Los Angeles, and everyone knew the worst of the fruit. You know, we got a homelessness crisis, you know, that was massive before COVID. and has just been exasperated. We already knew about corruption and violence. You know, you got incarceration issues across the state. I mean, LA leads statistically with the most people incarcerated, most people homeless on the streets, most children stuck in child welfare, stuck in the system, and most kids legally separated from their parents that do not have a family to go to that literally just need to be adopted, need to find that forever home. And we knew the worst of the fruit, but we hadn't identified the root. And as we started identifying the root, we actually we found what we call the problem cycle. And this is not what we feel. This is what the facts say. And not everyone loves what the facts say because we have different political viewpoints or we have different belief systems. But statistically, when you actually look at America, the domestic context of this child welfare narrative – the, the number one issue facing this nation is actually fatherlessness. It, it actually, you know, whether you love men or think, and you know, a, a woman should be married to a man. I get all of the reasons why we might not want to embrace it. It's just the facts. The facts are, as fatherlessness creates broken homes. Broken homes create neglect, neglect and abuse, and the neglect and abuse funnels hundreds of thousands of kids annually in America into an overburdened foster care system. And this foster care system becomes a statistical cesspool of the worst of the fruit. So this is that you know, but for our viewers who don't know, right now, I mean, when it comes to incarcerated individuals, which we know there's, you know, there is a systematic issue in incarceration statistically. There is a problem. These are now considered second rate citizens. They can't vote. There's all these issues. But at the end of the day, 70% of inmates spent time in the foster care system. So it literally went back to this overburdened foster care system. When you think about human trafficking, right, on average, lowest estimate, the data says there's 100,000 boys and girls being trafficked annually, and 60% of them are directly connected to foster care group homes or spent time in the foster care system. If you think about homelessness, right now, if you age out of the system, boy or girl, within two years, it's not you could, within two years, 40% of you will actually be homeless. When you think about perpetuating the cycle, which is basically teenage pregnancy, getting pregnant without any type of partner present, 56% of all female foster youth youth that age out of the system will be pregnant by the age of 21 without any partner or support mechanism present, which you can imagine now just perpetuates the cycle. So I, I know when it comes to Lindsay and the entire team at Orphan Myth, looking at the global narrative and us domestically, we're just going, hey, where can we actually deal with the 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 root so we can see a drastically different version when it comes to the fruit. And when you think about America, there's five cities that represent this is kind of our focus, right? We didn't want to just go to L.A. We see Chicago, Houston, New York and Miami is where we'd be taking our efforts because these five cities carry 50 percent of all of the statistics, the bad statistics of the entire nation. Like all of the foster care statistics, 50% of them live in five cities. All of the incarceration statistics live in five cities. All of the corruption, violence, homelessness statistics live in these five cities. So it's really being able to, one, tell people, hey, this is the issue. So it's not, hey, do we stop doing prison you know, efforts? Do we stop rescuing kids being trafficked? And, and no, it's like it's, it's, it's a both, right? It's not an either or. It's an and. But I do think the genius is in the order. Right. It's literally let's let's start off where it's going to get bad. And then let's also deal where it is currently already bad and then bring a completely different solution to the entire narrative. You know, I,
0: I love so many things Sorry for, you the tangent. Up. <laughs> Sorry no, for the tangent. No, I love so many things you brought up. And I mean, it's I, I was excited to have you on the show, especially with your L.A. focus, because that's so close to home for us. You know, my. All right, all right my my wife family is quite open about it they're trying to be one of the stories that helps change but like you know my mother-in-law trafficked as a 12 year old in santa monica and at 12 years old and ended up being you know abandoned on the streets as a 13 year old and she got her younger brother shipped off to northern california to live with her grandma and like you know the hotel where she lived for a month while her mom had when her mom had first left you know they kicked her out after a month and the guy was like i'm so sorry Lori." like I just can't. I just can't give you the room for free anymore. I'm like, how is he not calling child services? To <laughs> like, what is right? So she kind of lived. She kind of lived under the pier and with other street kids in, in L.A. And you know, she's a fourth generation in her family, and she's a total hero of mine because she broke the cycle, so it didn't happen to my wife. You know, wow. and I'm the first. You talk about fathers in in the in her mom's line. You know, her mom, grandma, grandma, grandma. I'm the first dad to stick around in a hundred years on that family line. And, That's crazy, you know, her kids, her kids have, my wife's kids have such drastically different lives than her mom and grandmas and, and those people, you know, and like, you know, you talk about the father's thing. I think about president Obama. I've got friends that love him. i have got friends that hate him. And regardless, there isn't something interesting where he came out and talked about, not having enough fathers in the home and and fathers not taking enough responsibility in America and right. you know that wasn't necessarily a popular stance and no and uh, no. I appreciate him like
1: speaking the truth when it when it wasn't popular to his base do you know what i mean no I'll send you an article I just got this week, and I'm going to reference it poorly, which I'm going to send it, and then you'll clean it up later. Uh, but it was one of the—it's from a man, but he was one of the leading feminists, part of you know the national feminist group. And listen, I'm, I'm for so much of all of these groups. I just don't want to—I don't want to let my feelings override the facts because I wanted to i don't want to do what I want to do. I just want to do what's going to work, right? That's my posture. It's like—is this what I want, or is this what's going to work? So many times we're just literally stifling what could work. By literally just doing what we want. And he literally came out to them because he was just doing his own studies. I'm going to send this to you. And he goes, Hey, I know what we're propagating and believing, but the data is showing that fatherlessness is actually becoming a big crisis in America. This is what a feminist is saying. And he, and the reason why he's coming out to talk about it is because they looked at him and said, Hey, you might want to consider the findings that you're revealing here. And maybe we're just reponder what the implications of this is. And he was like. I just got to tell people what the truth is. And guess what? He just got kicked out. Like you're no longer in this group. And it's it's like, I'm not, I'm not anti group or pro group. It's literally just going, Hey, how are we going to help our country and how are we going to help our culture? And i am even saying for me, like my personal opinion, because you know, you think about America, there's, there's so much, there's so much narratives right now that we're, we're processing. There's so much disunity. But when I look at most of the issues for me, it doesn't start off with the presence of hate. It actually starts off with the absence of love. You know, when you know who hates you more than who loves you, you're going to identify with either who you hate or who hates you. This is where this is where this I would say not racism starts, but the success of racism lives, because at the end of the day, I, I grew up in an environment in Hawaii. I, I know I'm ai know if you're watching. I'm a, a white 38 year old male in a five and 11 year old body. Unfortunately, I'm not six, four and a few other gift sets. But when I grew up in Hawaii, there was a period of time in the islands I lived in where being white was not a win and i was hurt i was hit i was you know i got i mean i got beat up it was super bad but i had a home that loved me i had parents that loved me so that the presence of hate didn't define who i was because i had an abundance of love and so right now we can talk about the hate we can remind people of the hate but you can't remove hate you have to replace hate and the way you replace hate is with an abundance of love that is why our campaigns called love has no limits and why this foster initiative, there's, there's seven other initiatives, part of this campaign, but the biggest one is this foster initiative because at the end of the day, the problem that these kids are going to journey through, you know, in their process is simply you grew up in an environment where love wasn't present. So you're going to define yourself by who you hate or by who hates you. And right now it's time to bring back to the American narrative, at least what it looks like to love someone or be loved without a limit.
0: I love it. You know, I, I, I especially, I think about the value of radical self-honesty and like the courage to embrace it, the courage to embrace it. Even when we don't like the answer, you know, like, like pre-orphan myth, like my family was like, we were thinking about moving to Costa Rica for three months during COVID to just go volunteer at an orphanage in Costa Rica and surf and, and stuff. And like, like this wasn't like 10 years ago we were thinking about this. Like we were making plans on this not very many not very long ago. You didn't know? need like all this education and stuff. It's like do I even want to admit that now that I realize like un- unfortunately like the attachment problems and the way that like hit hit and run humanitarianism doesn't isn't as beneficial as as it would look like in the videos, you know? And, and you know like it, it's I don't know, I feel like it's the whether it's for-profit, non-profit like don't you just have like the most respect and trust in those leaders willing to call their own fouls?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, I just think, I mean, for us, we're in this environment where who cares who gets the credit credit, right? So it's, you know, the reason why you have to mask or you can't be as transparent is because you're trying to make sure you get the credit. And if you introduce a flaw or a failure, it's hard to get the credit when you're losing some credibility you know, but what I've realized is that that honest, transparent, open posture, like, hey, we've, you know, we talked before, you know, there's, hey, we're, we're working on this orphanage model, but, you know, this is not the best version, but this is the best version of us for us right now, instead of just being like to your donor base or whoever, we figured it out. You know, it's like, let's just be honest on the journey. Like we're, we're trying to figure it out. We always tell our, our partners, we're on a ne- never ending journey of not arriving, like we will never get to the point where we go done, figured it out, you know, eradicated this issue. Like it no longer exists because there's going to be new learnings, right? Like there's every culture, every context there's going to be these new learnings. But for me, I love the leaders that go, Hey, this, we do feel like we have some confidence in, but this is a big old question mark, or this is where we failed." I mean, especially because this is an innovation podcast, right? I mean, there's no innovation without failure. If you haven't failed, you are not probably innovating because there has to be some margin of failure. And for us, we embrace failure to the point of, we don't just say, hey, what would you do if you couldn't fail? I mean, that's that's the maturity of most people taking risks. Like, hey, what would you do if you couldn't fail? If you had a safety net? Have you had the billion dollar backing? For us, we go, what would you do that is worth failing for? What is so significant that you would risk failing and losing everything for? Let's go do that thing. And I think that's where we're at and that's what you're talking about. But if you're trying to act like you're never going to make a mistake, you're never really going to make a difference.
0: You know, I, I appreciated something that you brought up before before the show. You talked about some some things about yourself that you felt like you needed to improve on personality-wise. And, and I kind <laughs> of relate to some of that. And uh, anyways, yes. I, think it, I think it speaks to your character to just kind of out yourself on some of the stuff and own it, but without like a sense of self-blame for how previous were. It's like you're
1: living life forward. If you want me to tell our viewing audience, Jess, I can. Yes, I was an arrogant prick 15, <laughs> 16 years ago. And I'll be honest. I mean, I think this is great for every leader, healthy for everyone listening. For me, I now do that immediately up front. That's, I mean, I just, you know, just started talking. I'm just like, Hey, this is who I was because it also gives people the greatest context. Like, Hey, I'm trying to trust this person or believe in this person. And I really was an arrogant prick. I didn't know this. I was an unaware, arrogant prick, which is, Maybe sometimes the worst, but also a little safer. I mean, if I was doing it by design instead of by default, man, what a horrible human being I was. It was really by default. It was an auto it was an operating system I wasn't aware of. As we all know, listening, all behavior is belief driven, right? So there was some belief that was driving all of my behavior. And I, I went to this actually personal mastery class post-college, just getting married, and I realized in this class that I was in this competitive Environment and, and I actually grew up in an environment where if I didn't win, I didn't get recognized. And so I had to win. And winning wasn't just like you won the game. I played competitive collegiate sports. It was, did you go to the right school? Did you date the right girl? You know, did you make the right decision? And so like I had to win to get recognition. And in my version of winning, there was only one. So there is a winner. And then everyone else, as you've heard, just you say, hey, you know, second place is the first loser. It's actually not true, but that's what I thought. Second place is the first loser. And so I spent so much time helping people lose so I could win. And then really my wife, I want to give credit to, and I'd say divine providence and some personal development hit me like a ton of bricks because I really down in my heart, I really wanted to help people. And I really love humanity. And I actually don't want to be a jerk. I just didn't know it. And then all of a sudden, my winning got redefined as helping everyone win. And I'll just tell you, for everyone, I mean, leading whatever space you're in, it is unbelievable. One, what will flow through your hands if you never selfishly hold on to it? Like for me, I just have, I'm so afraid to lose what is my destiny in design is going to give me next by selfishly holding on to what it's giving me now. You know, so the moment you go mine, ours, me, whether that's title, position, platform, income, innovation, like I've now actually, I've created a blocker from what could possibly next. So I've just realized, man, you, if I just hold everything open, it's amazing, the relationships, the resources, just the ideas that come simply because I'm never going, this is mine. And then it's really hard to win or really hard to lose when you define winning, as helping everyone win. Like, I feel like I'm, I've am i created the number one innovative podcast in Apple Music because you have, you know, and I get to know you. And I'm like, if we make this podcast better, we win. If you said Jedediah Child Rescue just raised a billion dollars, I'm going to be like, we just got a billion dollars. Like, I, mean, I that's exactly how I feel because it's going to the same causes that I care about. Does it matter if it's in my bank account or in yours? All that matters is that that money gets to the mission, right? It gets to the mandate, whatever we're doing. And it's just the healthier way to live. And I think some of the greatest leaders in the world, if if you're on your journey up the mountaintop, it's going to be really unfortunate when you get there if you get there alone. You know, I think most leaders, like they always say, it's lonely at the top. No, that's because you've made it lonely at the top. It does not have to be lonely at the top. I, I, I feel like I have more friends than ever as I journey higher because I'm taking everyone with me or they're taking me with them. And at the end of the day, you can get all the success in the world, get every accolade you want. But if you didn't give some of that away to someone that you're taking on the journey with you, man, it's going to be a miserable experience up at the top. You're going to have a great view, but you're not going to have a single human being to share it with.
0: You know, I feel like there's a lot in there. You know, for me, I I think that mine, mine was a lot more of like I, I grew up in Edmonton, the city of a million. Right. And I was like. I was like, thought I was one of the cooler kids, you know, my 10 year old with my neon shirts and my skateboard. And I moved to this little farm town of like 3000 people and neon shirts and skateboards aren't cool. Like wearing plaid and playing football is cool. Right. And, <laughs> and so I spent the next year kind of like, I wasn't like one of the nerdy kids. I was like one of the like faceless masses, <laughs> you know, that's how I think of it. And, right. but kind of ticked off about it, you know? So I'm like, I, I like. I actually like think that I started to ex- like accept some of those images about myself. Like maybe I don't matter as much as people. And so rather than mm-hmm. deal with that, I thought, well, I'll get external proof that I matter. Like I'll create this like cardboard cutout version of myself that I wish everybody believed in. Right. So I became like, you know, tried to become the, kind of the best snowboarder anybody would heard of there. I was the first kid to land backflips. I was the first kid to jump 30 foot cliffs and blah, 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 blah. That's right. Dope. I thought, so I thought that made make me important. Then my early twenties, I realized like, Oh, if I just became super rich, like this is a great way to keep track. I can prove I'm important if I was rich, right? And Ooh, so, wow. I spent my early 20s trying to convince everybody I was doing better than I was. But the so, nature of like
1: working, which means we were in debt. That's what that means. We
0: were <laughs> leveraged. <laughs> and, yeah, and like, you know, selectively leaving things out to give the implication I was doing better. Like my friends believed it, okay? But but those skill sets like pushing really hard and learning learning leadership and recruiting and sales and these things. When I got into finance and all of a sudden I started selling like millions of dollars of stuff as a 24 year old. Well, a little tiny commission on enough millions and ends up being a lot of money. Do you know what I mean? And I'm in San Clemente. I get to buy my big S class Mercedes. I think it's the best thing ever. And it's like two weeks later, you're like, well, two days later, you're like, where's the fireworks? Nobody, nobody even knows I'm driving this. Nobody cares. Well, this isn't all it's cracked up to me, you know, right? But like, I look at these, this journey during my twenties and like, at first I was like desperate to be important. So then I was like, had all these like cardboard up versions of like, not only am I, not only do I matter as much as the rest of you, I'm one of the important people I, I'm trying to pretend, right? right. Well, then, right. then I actually start getting some really big results and all of a sudden people start treating me different. You know, I'm like a 28 year old CEO of a private equity fund and flying on private jets. And Lindsay gets me into like dinners at movie stars, houses and stuff like that. Right. And, That's right. and if you have any desire to feel you're special and people start treating you different, you think like, Oh, look, it's just pre-, like, a, you know, if you have any temptation, there's a lot of opportunity to believe your own press clippings when they actually exist. Right.
1: That's right. Well,
0: then you start getting entitled. And anyways, it was, it was not great and the the arbinger institute and my faith and some of this stuff helped me start taking a look in the mirror of like the ways i'm objectifying others there's this austrian philosopher from 100 years ago named martin buber that says most of our people problems come from the two ways of looking at people you i can either think about them like a like an I to an it like i'm talking to an object or right. an I to a you like human I'm to, like i'm thinking about you human to human and that basically right. like you know i can pay you a compliment but you're not going to pay attention to as much of what I say or do as the fact that you pick up on the fact that I think you're a piece of dirt when I paid you that compliment and you're going to react right. to the way I'm thinking about you, not to what I actually did and said, but I can justify right. saying like, I was nice. All I did was compliment the guy. Right. And I'm like rationalizing. Anyways, we can get into that later, but
1: I love that. Well, I, I just think it's, in, I mean, th- this would be my, you know, my soapbox, but I just feel like you, we have to move from how to, you know, how do I make my life better to how do I make the world better? You know, I always tell people if, if every one of your dreams come true, what changed? You know, everyone listening right now, it's like, hey, if every dream that you had came true, what changed? Did it, did it just mean you have more square footage in your house or square meters, where depending on where you're listening? You know, did, did it just mean like you got the S class? Like, if dreams come true, what changed? I don't want my dreams come true, my life to change. I want my dreams come true, the worlds to change. And for some people like, man, that is audacious and that's crazy. And you're just one of those, you know, those do-gooders out there. No, the reality is, is everyone, I mean, that's the orphan myth, right? It's like, everyone is hundred percent participation. Everyone can make a difference. Like, that's the cool thing about right now, the era we live in, right? Like we all live in the same period of time. It has actually never been easier to make a difference, it's actually never been easier to do good. You can go right on an app, you can go right to a website right now. You can, you know, look at what AKB is doing, just capturing stories. Like it's never been easier to do good to make a difference and actually do good that can be sustained. And a lot of people just don't even enter into that conversation because they think it's for just the tree huggers or you know for the UN specialists or the guys that just want to sleep in sleeping bags in the middle of developing nations and you know hug sick people. It's like, no, 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 no. Like everyone everywhere can actually make a difference and everyone can be a part of changing the future uh, of what our world looks like and really the future of what the lives of these kids look like. And I love that that's your heart, man. I really do. And I love that people listening are getting an invitation to that. You might have tuned in to be like, man, how do I build a business or how do I have success and strategies or how do I develop a network of networks? At the end of the day, that's a bunch of what's and how's and I think that why of helping humanity, it's right, it's principled entrepreneur. It's do well by doing good. Yeah. You know, and that is where we're moving and the generation emerging is going to demand it from everyone in the corporate sector. It's more than just social responsibility. Hey, where's your give back? It's actually can part of your business model be doing good and that allows you to do financially well.
0: You know, I, w- I want to talk about business and the ways that it can meld and benefit with making the world better. Can you talk about mm-hmm. any of the lessons? You know, I know you're previously quite successful in the real estate world. Any of the lessons from that time in your life that have helped you with this work?
1: Yeah, it's a great lessons from, I mean, it was, it was really get out of the way. I mean, in my old life, I would say the lessons is what we started with. You know, when I sold high end residential real estate and then I had a, a waste consulting company, I never was trying to sell a house. I was always trying to bridge and build a relationship I mean, I remember hosting my first billionaire client, largest potato farmer in the world. I can't say his name or I'll get in trouble. But I looked at him and I actually met him on a cruise ship, met him on a cruise ship on our one year anniversary. Two years later, he's with me out in Palm Springs. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. So-and-so, just so you know, I don't care if I ever sell you a house. And he looked at me, he said, what? And I go, I'm sitting In my car is a billionaire who's learned more than I ever could imagine. And I go, this is my education. I go, so until you tell me to stop, I'm going to ask you questions. And really part of asking these questions was to know who he was and to build a relationship, not so that he would buy a house, so that I would actually get the revelation, the understanding, the principles and practices that allowed him to make a billion dollars. You know, I think so many people, this is what's great about this podcast. If you're just listening to what we're saying, you're missing out what you really should be leaning into and listening is how we're thinking. When I listen to, when I interview or talk to people, I'm not really listening to what's coming out of their mouth. I'm listening to the framework and how these worlds and words are actually being created. How do you think? And so I would sit there in those days. And this is, I was borrowing a car uh, to sell high end residential homes. I hadn't made it at all yet. I'll never forget it. It was basically faking it until you make it. But for me, it wasn't about the transaction. It was about the relationship. And I have so many clients of mine that bought property with me, they're friends and we've done humanitarian initiative, all types of things. Why? Because they didn't see me as the guy who sold houses. They saw me as the guy that had a relationship with them in their best interest in, in, at my at hand. And I think for anyone doing business, you know, that is the game changer. You know, like when you actually are genuinely doing out of the framework to help the person you're serving and that's really the framework and you don't see them as, as a, a problem to solve. Like, how do I get you to buy or how do I get you to sell? It changes, you know, the framework drastically different, you know? So that was a lesson I think I learned that really came into what we're doing now. Cause that's the same thing now, you know, it's just like, Hey, let's build relation. We're not trying to get someone to, it's not a transaction. You know, I think so much of this world's become a transaction. But that was a big difference. I think also the desire, you know, that selling businesses was part of my success. Like I could control this. You know and this is what like you said people saw this hey you and your partner did 89 million in sales this year in real estate more than anyone in the entire desert like i could show this and then all of a sudden it's like hey what are you doing you're helping kids in the middle of nowhere and you've sold both houses and businesses like people thought we were crazy but for me it was figuring out the greatest value that's why i say hey i, I got out of poverty alone i got to my own personal mountaintop alone and then concluded Man, it's up here if there's no one here to share this with me. How do I take everyone in my life with me on the journey?
0: I love it. You know, it, it's funny. Our, our friend in common, Lindsay Hadley, I feel like this miniseries gives me so many chances to brag about her. I'm such a fan. You know, awesome. we first started working together, not that far from you in, uh, in Costa Mesa. That's how we met. It's but creepy. I look at the way she is so willing to do a favor for someone else and use up some of her social capital in a non-transactional way it's like genuinely inspiring. Like I literally have changed my life more so in the last few years that she's had such just absurd success of like just seeing what she does. She's always scratching everybody else's back and she creates this like undying love. And then she can call. And then when she calls and says, Hey, I've got something, could you help me with this? And she knows what to ask and not to ask, but it's, it is, it's more fun to have success that way. Right.
1: Yes. I mean, that is, when you, when you build so much equity because you've done it with honor, right? And you didn't ask to get something. But I, I think most of my ask for the people in my world are not to get something, but to give something. you know. And then there's a few moments in time where it's like, hey, th- I, you are leveraging a little more than you would for me. You are you going to make that pool or you're going to call that influencer? But I definitely think that's the incredible way to do life. I also know, if I think back at those days, I was in the journey of living life by default instead of life by design, right? I think about leaders, right? This is a leader innovation podcast. No one gets to a devi- desired destination by default. You know, everyone's tuning in right now trying to get something, a key, a skill set, an understanding to be more intentional about the pursuit of their promise or their progress that they're looking after. But no one gets to a desired destination by default. Like no one ends up in Hawaii on vacation, with millions of dollars in the bank, having lost 30 pounds by default. Like, how'd you get here? I don't know. I stumbled on the plane, found a million in the bank, lost the lost the 30 pounds, flying first class. It was like, no, no, all of that was by divine design. All of that was literally by by design, not by default. And I think so many leaders out there, what I was doing in my life was just prospecting by default, living by default, you know, leading by default, which is why I was competitive and I was a jerk. And then it was like, how do we actually make sure we get to the conclusions we want. Hey, I want everyone to feel great about working with me or being employed by me. Well, man, you're going to have to stop acting this way and talking this way because what's your desired outcome? That everyone follows you or everyone loves what they're doing or you took the limit off. You know what I mean? So that's another thing I love about what you're doing. This is this is material and conversations to go, hey, listen, you don't have to go through the process of discovery by default. There's actually a handful of leaders that have given you keys so that you can take some key steps by design.
0: Well, I appreciate that.
1: You know, let, let's go the other direction. You know, there's
0: a lot of right. startup owners, founders, co-founders listening, investment company managers listening. When you think about something like getting partners to work together who maybe wouldn't work together otherwise, what's, what's can, you get, can you tell us a real-life story about some country you're in or something you're doing in L.A.? And then later, let's pull the principles out of it for that for-profit organizations can learn from what you're doing. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. I, I think when it gets, and maybe it's not just people within the organization, but organizations. Like I'm thinking, you know, I'd answer that, hey, I, you know, we we're at this firm or we're at this investment model, but we have to work with other firms or there's this other prospecting model. For me, it's figuring out, as we've said in nations, what's that? What is that unifying? narrative and really when it comes to all movements right the science behind movements is not a bunch of people closely connected it's actually small groups loosely connected united for a common goal you know so when you think about some of the stuff we've done in these developing nations the goal is not to get everyone in the same room the goal is not to get you know a faith community and the LGBT community and the feminists you know community and you know the Jewish Federation and the government and the media professionals the goal is not to get everyone in the same room that would be a mistake the goal is hey you've got your world that you're working in and living towards let's just get everyone loosely connected united for a common goal and so that common goal is really is what that unifying narrative is you know what's this thing that wants to happen and i think this is like for those that are doing business period this question of what wants to happen is probably one of the best questions you could ask, because so many times we're creating an idea, a product, you know, a program that we want to happen. And then we spend millions of dollars forcing it to take life, right, forcing it to come to reality. But for us, we sit there in every context and go, actually, what wants to happen? Like, what does this city want or what does this culture need or what does this country need? I know it sounds crazy, but it's like you asked enough questions to a politician, to a president, to these different leaders. You're going to all hear, you know, hey, there's just one thing no one can solve or this one problem. And does this want to happen? Because then if you can actually create a framework for it to just happen and get out of the way, it will actually become viral. Like every campaign we've done in a nation no one saw it as a humanitarian effort. Everyone adopted it as this is a national movement happening in our nation. And a great example of like what wants to happen is like it's platform technology or thinking about Uber, right? Like Uber for me was not a transportation platform, Jess. Uber was an employment platform. People look at it and they go, oh, it's a transportation platform. And I go, nope, that's not why Uber even exists. Uber tapped into the network marketing spirit of Americans who wanted a discretionary income at their own pace, at their own leisure, and didn't want to have to create an LLC or a business and manage their livelihood. But they also didn't want to sell Arbon or Monavi or Rodenfields, which I have friends that have crushed it in all those businesses. But they go, hey, we don't want to do network marketing, but we're tapping into the network marketing spirit of Americans who need a secondary income at their pace. Not one of the hundreds of thousands of people that drove that first month in that first year ever woke up one day and said, I want to be a driver. You literally they go, I needed a secondary income. But here's what's crazy. The success of Uber is not because people need rides. The success of Uber is because the availability of drivers. And the moment the drivers go away, you stop using the platform. Here in Los Angeles, COVID made Uber uh, very ineffective and very inefficient and Lyft. And I remember waiting my first time for, for an Uber that would have come in minutes, 45 minutes, and then now going through a Rolodex online to find a taxi service and being like, this no longer works because it's no longer providing. It's not that I need a ride that made it work, is because there was endless amounts of drivers. But if you think about it, it wasn't like we needed to solve this transportation crisis. There wasn't one. They literally go, we have this employment opportunity. That if we create a platform, this will want to happen and we can get out of the way, right? And so I think businesses and people, like, you're just going to have way more lift, as I would call it, and way more instant success by sitting there going, what actually wants to happen in this community, in this sector, in this industry? Like, look at what Elon Musk did. You know what wanted to happen in the auto industry? They wanted disruption, You know, like they wanted to, the industry needed to be disrupted. I I lived in Michigan for three years. I know the union language. I know the leasing language. I know why these cars depreciate so quickly is because of the, you know, in the industry economy, which is, you know, a lease revenue versus a purchase revenue in the whole experience. Right now, I, I bought a Tesla, shameless plug. I hope we get a sponsorship advertised dollars for this. But I'll tell you what, what Elon did, which I love. Now, this is not his language but Elon had no reference point for the auto industry. So he didn't have to take this archaic system that he knew and grew up in forward into the future. Like, how do we take unions? How do we take manufacturing? How do we take leasing and move it into the present? He literally said, let's erase the whiteboard, right? Now that we have innovation in, 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 in technology, what's the most excellent, efficient transportation experience we can create now? And then literally, you know, do it. And and I think that's what's so, I think, key for people out there. It's like, hey, are you actually building something that wants to happen? And then how can you actually erase the whiteboard? You know, and let's not move these archaic systems. Like, you know what Orphan is all about? Sorry to bring it back to our orphanmic topic. They're literally saying we got to erase the whiteboard. You know what I mean? Let's not just try to move this archaic model forward. Let's. What if we could start from scratch? You know, I look at L.A., there's a billion dollars annually for child welfare in Los Angeles County, one tenth of the entire national budget, Jess, is spent in Los Angeles, and they're going to adopt about 50 kids this year. Going to get adopted out of the system, like there's a billion dollars, and this is the success we have is not solving any problem, but just sustaining and serving the existing problem. And I think those so, are the frameworks where, you, if, you, if this wants to happen. And we can actually create a framework for it to happen and get out of the way. It actually will happen. And it's a lot easier to innovate that way. Let's talk about
0: Love Has No Limits. Let's talk about what you're doing in LA. You don't have to use names if you don't want to. But I have seen – well, I'll back it up. One of my favorite uh, thinkers for entrepreneurs out there is this guy named Dan Sullivan who wrote an amazing book this year called Who Not How. It's like says, quit quit Mm. all those things you think up, entrepreneur. Quit thinking you're going to do them all and get better at team building and figure out who's the right person to do, like stay the architect and hire the construction crews, you know? Okay. That's my short, short version of it, but he, he's coached more $10 million entrepreneurs than anyone else on earth. He's been doing it for like 45 years. He's got this group called strategic coach and a number of our clients, CEO clients who are, you know, raise tens of millions of dollars or one of them's raised like $8 billion for for her investment fund clients, right. They're they're Dan Sullivan coaches and fans. And so I, I end up learning more about him because our clients are his clients. Right. But he talks about this oh. idea of co-op, he calls it co-opetition. I don't know if he made the word up. I think somebody else did, but it's this idea of like, can you figure out how to partner with your competition? Can you figure out how to like divide things up differently? Right. And right. we don't often <clears throat> hear people talk about that in the for-profit world. So my question, cause, cause so many people don't realize like, how often it's even worse in the nonprofit world because everybody's so worried that this donor left. is going to give that guy money instead of me money. And then I'm going to have to shut my team down, you know? So my question for you is, can you think of an actual story where you had somebody who would have been naturally skeptical that you were able to win over to, to being, being a part of the larger group you can tell us about?
1: I mean, yeah, we worked that well, there's many, every nation, right? So every, You know, these worlds don't work together. I think we, a fun one, which I would say had mixed reviews, but I do love it, was what we did in Peru. We had, you know, it had the number one domestic abuse issue. Like this violence against women was the number one issue. And there was tension between groups that cared. You know, so there's a feminist group, you know, that cared. But that feminist group really had a hard time with groups that had faith attached to it. Maybe with a different value set, and then there was the LGBTQ community, and then there was the pro-life community and the pro-choice community. Right? These guys aren't friends, in case you've done your research, <laughs> you know, you know. But the, guess what? All of them cared about women being abused unjustly by men. You know, by men. It was just the abuse yeah. was crazy, and so we had uh, we had this women's initiative and this women's movement, which had the Ministry of Women of the Nation, which was really the, probably the face of the LGTBQ community and feminist group. We had the vice president who was a female of the nation. She was the vice president of Peru and she was probably supported by uh, a larger constituents of pro-choice advocates. And then we had... Basically, the Oprah of Peru. That's what she had. The, she's she is the most influential woman in the nation, and has this has the highest approval rating out of any Peruvian citizen. Her name's Gisela. If she ever hears this, she's unbelievable. Who had very, had internally some strong beliefs, but publicly, you know, would never share those. And then we had a lady by the name of Lisa Bevere, who comes from the you know a faith narrative. She probably spends more time in that space. People that you know, connect to some sort of faith, probably that looks or feels more Christian. Now, these people would never work together. They would never talk together. In fact, at that time, because of some riots that happened in Peru in 2019, or excuse me, 2018, there was this apprehension for partnership with any NGO or faith communities that had a different belief system than the feminists or the LGBTQ. And in that conversation, I mean, we met one by one, they never all met initially. And we just said, what's the greater what's the greater value? Like, are we going to sit and fight for this, this mindset or this ideology, which I think is secondary to the bigger conversation, you know, whether it's, Hey, women empowerment, or whether it's, Hey, we believe in, in all sexual preferences or whether it's, Hey, we believe in a God and that he's involved in your life or, Hey, we have influence. It was basically saying, Hey guys, would we be willing to not be right or have to fight to be right on something so that we could be one on something bigger? And the reality is, is you can always go faster alone, but you'll always go further together. And when there's any framework for unity, it actually has a compound multiplier attached to it. It's just a fact. There's a compound multiplier. So all of a sudden, in front of the entire nation, you had the Ministry of Women, the Vice President of the Nation, the Oprah of Peru, Gisella of the Nation, and Lisa Bavir representing the space space, all standing as a united front saying, we need to stop this issue. Now, I will say because we are learning that the, the nation did not respond well because the individual subgroups connected to these leaders said, why are you with them and why are you with them? And so it was literally we had to go back and I'm just being super transparent. It was like it was beautiful because it actually got people that needed to stay in a conversation to start the conversation. And they did. And it was unbelievable to see what that dialogue was like. It was very hard because of the extremes of all of the groups that they represented said, how can you be feminist and be connected to someone of faith? Or how can you be connected to this influencer who we know was, you know, really, you know, she wasn't a fan of abortion but then be next to the the vice president who's really championed the ability to decide what a woman does with her body. And so for them, it was like, that was definitely a conflict of interest, but it was constantly pointing to say, listen, here's the unifying narrative, which means there's more that we actually can agree upon than we can separate. And we can spend a lot of time focusing on our differences, but if we can actually just figure out on the thing we can align on, then it's possible.
0: Okay. So I love this story. It makes me think about like how many people hated Bill Clinton and hated George Bush. And then you see George Bush and Bill Clinton get on stage together and do stuff. Okay. Right. My question for you is thinking about some of those one-on-one conversations where people have, people have concerns. Can you talk to me about any of those one-on-one conversations and, and just, you know, without oversharing just any of the principles or the things that happened in that one-on-one communication to get somebody over the hump and go, Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, well, for me, anytime it's a one-on-one conversation, I'm trying to figure out what matters to this person most. You know, so at the end of the day, I could be talking to the VP of Coca-Cola and as much as I want them to care about social good taking place in a nation, they're doing business at the end of the day, they're going to want brand credibility, <laughs> you know, they're going to want social responsibility. So it's literally figuring out what is the motivator for every one of them. Some of those girls, some of those women were like, Hey, we really care about domestic abuse. Some of them was like, Hey, I could potentially be in office one year. And this is now a way to broaden my base. I get all these other motivating factors. They're not wrong. You know, and it's not, I don't think it's un- I don't think it's unhealthy to move towards what motivates someone if it's really going to make the big difference. As I've always told my wife, if I was using these negotiations skill sets to just build my product or build my brand or, you know, sell our business, it would probably be unhealthy. I said, but at least in my, at least in my, you know, in my context, it is to help do good, you know? And so I think that's it. You're always looking for really where's the win just going to go, Hey, we should do good. So we're going to do good. So in every conversation, what does this person value and what really is the win-win? And then I'm also trying to figure out what is a bigger narrative I can introduce them to. How do I can create these new terms of engagement or agreement, you know, where you're like, Hey, we, we spent this amount of dollars for viewership or for, you know, unique impressions. Well, great. That's your terms of engagement and agreement, but let me create a a whole nother structure where it's like, you're going to get that, but this is actually what you're also going to get. And so for me, it's always figuring out what is that, what is that value, what is that motivator, and also what matters to them, right? I mean, sometimes it's so crazy. I mean, I can think of, you know, these are all developing nations, but sometimes it's like, hey, you you got us the deworming pills, you know, a million deworming pills on the Amazon jungle, like that is more to us than you send a thousand people to come here and help, or that meant more to, or like you got the volunteer who is helping a motorcycle. And it's like, oh, you spent fifteen hundred bucks on a motorcycle, and that fifteen hundred bucks was like you spent one point five million in marketing because of what that meant to that community, right? And so for us, it's literally going. What's the real value here? Okay, you know. And, and you I'll know just the- tell you, even in business, like let's not forget, the leaders of business are also people. Like some of these CEOs, right? Jess, like they are monsters, right? They are these at the top A-driven personalities. Get out of my way. Either go with me or get out of the way. At the end of the day, that is a person who's probably a dad or a mom, has a kid, you know, is a sibling, you know, was a son or a daughter, has a dream and a goal. And so for me, I don't look to any of these people as like who you are as a CEO or who you were as that potato farmer billionaire. It was like, who you are as the person? What's broken here? What's missing here? What's hurting here? Like seriously, because you might be a billionaire, but your marriage and your kids are on drugs and like. If I can talk to that part of your life, which sounds crazy, like if I can help or hear that part of your life or create room for you to be transparent with that part of your life, like you're going to do business with me way beyond my business strategy because I actually touched you as a human being, not just a human doing. And I think that is something we could all learn. And that's, you know, really practical to take away. You know, by the way, do you have a book? Have you written a book yet? I have not written a book okay.
0: yet. We should just transcribe this up. This could be most of a book
1: for you. Here is a lot of nuggets. Okay. <laughs> I hope we're helping someone. I really yeah. do. Well, it's such an honor, man.
0: You know, I feel like there's a number of things in there that really resonate with me. I think about the old Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Right. And he says, right. like, I really like strawberries and cream, but I found out that fish prefer worms. Like, why don't I bait so the hook good. with what they're interested in, not what I'm interested so in? so good. And like, so good. you know, we, we've over the years both... At, at the firm I was at before and I work now, we, we've done a lot of advising of senior leaders in the special operations community for the U.S. And, and, and a lot with the non-commissioned officers, kind of the top enlisted guys that actually go out in the field and, you know, kicking doors and rescuing hostages and stuff. Right. And I got to go on this. I got to go on this this thing to Nigeria when the Nigerians were standing up their special operations command. It's right after Boko Haram had kidnapped those 200 girls and, you know, t- tough, tough situation. And it was, so it was me and this like 25 year Navy SEAL team taught a class. And there was a special forces guy and an Islamic law specialist guy. And it was all put together by this force recon Marine for SOCOM. And I remember talking to him about how he felt like we just, they just need to be better at listening. Cause the, it was, the conference was basically like, here's, it was a week long. It's like 300 of these generals and special ops guys wow. for Nigeria. Wow. And it was like, here's the mistakes we made in Afghanistan. Here's the mistakes we made in Iraq. Hopefully you don't have to make those same mistakes with, with your Islamic terrorists, right? And, and this recon marine guy who, who I know really well and, and put it all together, invited us on the trip. I remember him saying, like essentially, like the more you can empower the people closest to the problem to genuinely listen And then let them have the authority to make decisions. The faster stuff is going to go well. And so like somebody back in the States, you know, some donor trying to fund the Peru thing says, this is what needs to happen. Here's why it needs to happen versus letting the person who's having the one-on-one conversations find out like, hey, this lady, she does care about abuse, but she's really trying to get elected. You know, nobody even knows she wants to be a politician, right? Let's, Let's bait the hook with what she's looking for. Right? He this recon marine told me like we spent way too much money as Americans on schools and water wells and stuff like this. And we should have been sending hundreds of veterinarians over and giving people mm-hmm. goats and spending time mm-hmm. helping them more with their goats. And that mm-hmm. like they're like some of the like medics would actually go do like veterinarian stuff. And they earned way more trust in these remote villages in Afghanistan and places by helping them with their animals instead of building schools that they didn't actually want. And that, you know, two years later, nobody was in, but you know, policy decision that doesn't play as well in the American media or also. Right. And so it's this interesting thing of like, you know, I I think about your story and I think about the times when I've failed at that because I sold them what I wanted to sell them for the reason I wanted to sell them. And guess what? It's like my grandpa says that, that, quote a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still right and you get like this oh yeah it's just like you get this like verbal yes but they don't really they don't have it in the bones you know and
1: well if you can negotiate someone into it someone can negotiate them out of it you know like that's what i've seen if i can use my intellect or my communication capacity to negotiate you into it you know, belief system, a value set, a direction or a course, a path, you know, a system of success, like someone will negotiate you out of it, you know? So that's, that's, that's the whole point. I mean, I, I probably haven't even thought about this just when I go, what wants to happen, it's not even just for platform technology or for large scale social chains. I'm actually probably reducing that down to just this simply conversation right here. Like, it's literally the same thing. It's like, I'm not trying to negotiate or communicate any, I mean, we're talking very little about all the things we're doing. People will find it. com, you know, backslash family, go to Ormith. like you'll find it. We're not spending a lot of time. I'm just literally going, hey, for this moment in time with this incredible man who's been providing content for over a decade to people around the world but actually just wants to come out of this. Like no agenda. Like, you know, I'm like, I'm not trying to drive to anything. I'm really just trying to facilitate what this moment in time said is possible. And I'm going to miss out on what's possible by simply just trying to facilitate what's practical. And I'm like, no, we're going to take this journey and I'm going to have, you know, there's going to be no roadmap or navigational beakings besides this moment. And you're, you know, triggering what you're feeling to go, Hey, what wants to happen for the people listening what wants to happen. It's like, it's easier to do life this way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's funny all the time. Like when we get, you know, like for like guy who just retired as a fortune 500 CEO and now he's writing a book, wants to come on the show, talk about his book or, you know, these people have like handlers, you know, or like CEOs of current, like current CEOs of multi-billion dollar firms. Everyone's trying to sell their book on here. By the way, if you write a book, just come back on. We'll talk about it. But the like CEOs of current multi-billion dollar organizations, like I have to talk to their PR people. Sometimes they talk to the PR agency before the pr person before we get them because you know that anyways it's just the bureaucracies right, right. and it, it's interesting to like they they want these questions like well what are you going to ask i'm like i don't know whatever seems interesting like i'm just going to be curious like i mean i want to know what they've got to say about innovation i want to know ta- what are takeaways right. for all the rest of the listeners you know now when i want stories right. not generalities right but right. like I, i don't know man like i could we could come up with some questions what do you think i should ask your boss
1: Right. <laughs> you know and they're like That's
0: awesome right but it, it is this interesting thought too of like i think one of the things that i like about your approach too is this extreme practicality like we would all like people to do good things for the right reasons but right. like i'm willing to will- let them do the right things for others for for less than the best reasons like Our Lindsay built this team for us when she launched child rescue for us 10 years ago, she went on to bigger and better things and just joined our board after that. But her team, you know, the team that she left us with through this great conference for youth. And we flew in NYPD cops and sorry, LAPD cops and other trafficking experts and survivors to come teach these like, you know, regular high school kids, what this world's actually like. Right. And um, so they could lead the chapter at their high school. And we've brought Mm. in this woman who had been in the foster system here in Utah and unfortunately, a foster dad had a, had abused her. She ran away, ended up getting involved with this gang. Somebody decides that they own her now and starts renting her out to other men, who sells her to another guy, who sells her to the Hell's Angels up in Canada, in 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 Vancouver. And cr- crazy story, but she ends up getting out and is like kind of a hero to me because she when she ended up getting out, she basically started an organization to go help other women get out, and she started an ice cream store wow. right on the track in Vancouver. And would like give out ice cream to to women in the life and like talk to them and be like, it was like her way, her side door in to like talk to them and right. offer them, like tell them that she had been there and she got out. And anyway, she helped all these women get off the street with ice cream. It's amazing. okay But, you know, I would I would rather get money for a child rescue from the most kind hearted people in the world. Right. But my joke all is right. like, I'll take money from the Hells Angels to fight the Hells Angels. You know, like we just need to get the job done. No, I'm not going to let somebody like I'm not going to let somebody who's making the world worse benefit off the name of being associated with us. But exactly. basically short of that, like we're, we're about helping the kids. We hope people want to do it for the right reasons, but we're just trying to help the kids.
1: Well, It's it's, Fred, it's, Fred, it's Frederick Douglass 101, which obviously this is not a political conversation, but our whole nation could learn from some of the incredible leaders that pioneered freedom for Mass groups of people, and it was unite with anyone to do good, unite with no one to do bad. You know, and I look at even our conversations. I mean, we—I have my personal beliefs that don't align. I'll just tell you, I don't align with everyone I work with. You know, and that, that is across the board. And here's the good news: but we do align on doing good for this group of people, and let's unite with anyone to do good and no one to do wrong. You know, if you think about America, we got this beautiful challenge called. Partisanship, which means you got to pick a team, right? It's like you got to pick the red team, you got Actually, to pick the blue team.
0: You don't, you don't anymore, and you can join my political organization if you want. I, I, I was so- you another. You started yeah, another party? Yeah, I did. It's called Family Values Independent. You can join. It's super easy to join. You just decide you're independent. Well, there,
1: well, there you go. Um, I you, you know in, in the partisanship journey, right? You walk in, you go, hey, we got to pick a side, and this is what we've done in America. Unfortunately, <laughs> there's no teams perfect. Both teams have horrible things both sides going for them. But the challenge is because we have protectionism, which means we got to protect our team, that if there's something good the other team's doing, but it has a margin of error, let's exploit that margin of error to say it's all bad so that our policy or team can be in place. And it's like, this isn't, you just see, you no, know, like people that, you know, what, what happens in one election cycle will be lost in the next election cycle and it's just going to keep happening. Partisanship doesn't work, it's partnership. It's actually who's doing the best on either team and let's be a team that just agrees with what's working or what's winning, regardless of if it's red or blue or this new family-independent, you know, value set. But I think that's the same thing with business, right? Like I, I, all, I look at the, I don't look towards calibration and partnership. I look at everything through the lens of calibration and partnership. So even like calibration is not a destination, right? Anytime uh, a vision, like I want to say, your culture becomes a goal like you have this distance that, sorry, has this distance that creates distraction, right? So if it's like, for me, like my family values, one of the things we say is generosity is a lifestyle. Generosity is not a goal. Like I'm not like, oh, this is when I give money a month from now or a year from now, we're gonna do this and I'm headed to this goal. No, generosity is the lens at which I look at everything through. So I'm generous in every context. I don't have to go one day be generous. I look at the lens through how can I be, generous you know so for us people have to be able to look through the lens of collaboration and so everything is how do i take maybe businesses i love what you said here's here's a group of businesses that aren't working well together they're competing do they all have unique capabilities that are better than the other that we could actually create a data set or a data mesh or you know a packaging of capabilities or a toolkit for this industry because of all of this i think that's i mean Bringing it back to super practical LA, that is what's happening with our foster initiative, right? Hey, there's people that are phenomenal at placing families. There's an organization that's ph- phenomenal at prevention. There's an organization, you well, know, AKB phenomenal at capturing stories of kids that don't have any family member to go to that desperately want to, you know, find a family and willing to risk rejection again. And then you have people that deal with social workers and meeting needs. These were all individuals fighting, like you said, for their own donor dollars, their own consumers you know, their, their, you know, their own client base and no one was talking together. And we just came in and said, Hey, you do these things way better than they do. And what if you just did your part and they just did what they do best. And we all brought it under one bigger thing. That's, you know, than anyone's name, orphan myth, love has no limits. And now we can give NGOs and, you know, faith communities and individuals, a list of capabilities to solve a problem knowing that it's not a one size fits all either, right? It's not like, Hey, this is how we solve it. And everyone do it this way and that's going to work. No, 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 no. Cause there's going to be someone who has an influence of 30 people, some that has 30 million, some that have a dollar to the name, some that can donate a million. And so it's literally go, let's create packages of capabilities to provide solutions to problems. No one solved yet.
0: You know, it's great. You know, I know we're, I
1: know we're a little
0: over time here, but my, or, or a lot over time definitely one of the two so my <laughs> no but my my last question has been kind of one of my favorite questions to ask lately and it's what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received
1: oh i don't even know if i can share all of them. the best pieces of, of advice. yeah just one
0: just what's one of one of the best ones
1: I mean, I think for, for well, show me your schedule. I got a hundred. Show me, I'm trying to think of what's the best. Show me your schedule and I'll show you your values. It's probably one of the best pieces of advice. You know, I'm in the season and I think all great leaders are, we're not managing time, we're managing energy. We've gone an hour and seven, seven minutes on this call or since you started press recording. I feel like we've been talking for a few moments. I'm going to have more energy today. I'm going to be excited today. That's why everyone's tuned in all these times, right? It's like, hey, this this time investment actually reproduced more time, reproduce more energy. And then there's people I spend five minutes with, and they took five days of my life away. You know what I mean? Because of that negative that negative energy. So for me, I would say, show me your schedule, show your values. And mine would be in the context of what's the most important to me would be my wife and kids. Most people our families get what's left, not what's best. They're they're our last thought. Hey, I got my, you know, my business, I got my corporate trips. I have, you know, my travel schedule. I have my, you know, my bookings, I'm speaking here, whatever it is, whatever your life looks like. And then we like try to slot family in or vacation in. And I realized I used to travel, you know, a couple hundred thousand miles a year. I was probably gone three to four months a year, not at a time it wouldn't have ever felt or looked like that, but that was, you know, and I probably never said it publicly. So take this off the record, but it was probably like three to four months a year where I did not sleep in my bed, where I did not get to put my four kids to sleep, where I didn't get to do our family routine. And I remember people used to say, "Yeah, hey, you know, like, is your marriage important? Absolutely. And you go, when's your next date? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we'll put a date on when we put a date on. And someone said to me, show me your schedule. I'll show you your values. If your marriage is important, you should schedule romance. You should schedule dating. If your family's important, you should schedule vacations. I'm just you, know, you should schedule time away. Why are you laughing so hard? Because I like on my
0: calendar, I literally had to write a note for Friday night. So they're all booked out. And it's like... It's like in all caps,
1: Jess, go date your wife with exclamation marks. <laughs> but that, but that is it. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, there's some people that are going to build billion dollar businesses and they're going to leave a life of broken relationships behind them and realize, you know, so, so for me, it's like, this is the greater value. So now I schedule vacations before we schedule our initiatives in our campaigns. Now I schedule dates, you know, so I'd say, show me your, I mean, I could look at your bank account, your text history and your calendar, and I can tell you exactly who you are. You know what I mean? Because obviously that if, if matters to you, you have to be able to manage it and you can't manage it if you don't schedule it. So for me, that will change your life. And then I would also say, um, never give the world what you don't give your family. You know, so for those of you that are, whatever that is, right? You might not be doing any philanthropy. You're, what you're giving the world is is jobs. What you're giving the world is a product, you know, that's unbelievable, like whatever it is. like, But don't give the world what you don't give your family. I used to always give, and it was easier for me to do this unhealthily because I was doing good. So that's even the worst case. You know, it's like, oh, if I don't go, these kids don't get helped. If I'm not there. And I remember one time my wife's like, I know everyone needs you, but so do we. And don't give the world what you don't give the family. So if you're going to be generous to the world, like with finances, be generous to your family. You know, if you're going to be generous with your time and, you know, do business meetings and schedule hours of conversations with, with boards or reporting or admin, whatever it is, Schedule that time with your family. Just don't give the world what you don't give your family. Because I think these are the everyone wants to figure out how people made their wealth. But no one's really talking about how people who made their wealth lost their life. (laughs) You know, and that's, that's probably a lot of people you've interviewed. It's like, man, we, we made the money, but in the process, we lost the things that mattered. So show me your schedule. I'll show your values. Don't, you know, don't give your family what's left. Give your family what's best. Don't ever give the world what you're not going to give your family. And then I'd obviously say routine, right? We are so convinced humans, humanity is overly convinced on the, what they think they can accomplish in a short period of time, but they completely underestimate what they'll actually be able to do with compound impact over a long period of time you know so we have the insta rich generation right and obviously with the dot com booms and then the bitcoin booms and all of this where you can make a billion dollars because of who's at the board table and you have no product and you have no profit you know what i mean like that's the model i think we just have to change the complete framework of of really how we're operating and uh, i'm going to keep going so i just better stop no it's it's such an
0: important message i am um, you know i my kids really want to be entrepreneurs and they've been bugging me and asking for help. And there's like been about a dozen times. It's like, okay, well like let's do like Tuesday nights and we'll like set aside this time. And it happens like once, you know what I mean? Right. (laughs) And, and so like my new thing, when you come back on, when you come back on the show to tell us about your book, you wrote, you can, you can quiz me on this. I, I just booked off on Friday afternoons and I put them on my work schedule and I booked them like a, like a regular client, like these CEOs we advise. And, you know, I'm like, it's, it's almost painful because I'm like, oh, those are work hours, you know, like I can, you know, right. And it shouldn't be, but it was. And so this is my new, this right. is my new attempt. You can check in on me next time we talk and see if I'm actually doing it.
1: I love it. And I had and I ones for everyone out there to make it just super emotional, right. Or personal is there's no future without forgiveness. You know, there's no future without forgiveness, right? And and for some of you listening, and you maybe you just gotta forgive yourself. Maybe I just said that one statement and you're like, man, I really do had my family, but I'm crushing that finance or I'm crushing that business. Or, you know, I have not been scheduling the right things. Or maybe you're hearing what Jess has done and, you know, these incredible causes, what Orphan Myth is doing. You're like, I'm doing nothing with my money. At the end of the day, like there's no future without forgiveness. And sometimes it's just forgiving yourself. And I've had to forgive myself for the hours, you know, or the minutes or the months that I wasted being an idiot. But then it's also forgiving others. And I think one of the most powerful forms of forgiveness is forgiving those who don't ask for forgiveness. You know, and there's a coach or a mentor. I mean, there's people on here listening that want to get ahead and someone created a lie, a limiting idea that you've been entertaining a belief system, a behavioral trait, you know, a construct or a framework of functioning by simply saying, you're not going to be smart or you're an idiot or you were a mistake or you got picked last or you're never going to own your own home or you're never going to actually be a CEO or you're, you're never, you're always going to be in the, you know, you're never going to get to the C suites, like whatever that is. You know, and at the end of the day, there's people that I've just realized did those same things to me. Some of them are friends. Some of them were family members. Some of those are coworkers. But the most powerful, freeing thing to me is when I go, hey, I, not only do I forgive you, but I actually want you to win, too. Like, I don't want just I just don't want the people I love to win. I want everyone to win. And I know that uh, I need to forgive you uh, so I can release this. And, and And listen, I know it's really hard, man. Some people you have reasons why not only should you not forgive them, you should hurt them or they should go to jail forever. I'm just telling you, there is no future uh, without forgiveness because there's really no freedom without forgiveness. And a future that's not free is not a future at all.
0: You know, I love it. Maybe my last one there is one of the things that's been the most helpful for me on that, especially with the self-blame, but it comes from the Toyota production system, like lean manufacturing, operational excellence, continuous improvement, whatever you want to call it. They have this saying of don't blame the person, blame the system if you want a different result, design a better system and like applying it to ourselves of like, you know, I can kick myself for my, my ADHD. I like, I land this big giant contract and I get all these things worked up and then I procrastinate or I forgot to do this one part of it. And I let somebody down and, you know, I can rake myself over the coals for it. Right. And this idea of like, what if I didn't even blame myself? What if I blamed the system of like, well, Jess, you're really terrible at working alone in front of a computer in an office by yourself. Like, why don't you design a system where you're working with, we have one of your employees come work with you, have one of your co-founders come work with you. Like if that's important, is it important enough to schedule somebody doing it with you so that you'll actually get it done?
1: You know? And like,
0: it's been, I don't know, one little thing that's been helpful for me lately.
1: I could keep, we could keep going forever, man. I really appreciate it. And, um, Hoping everyone out there listening, man, takes one step closer towards not just making your life better, but making the world better. Join the cause, man. Obviously, I'm sure you're going to promote it, Orphan Myth. 100% participation. Everyone can do something. That is the great news in every every construct of life or cultural context. Everyone really can do something. And it's never been easier to do something. And this is our future, right? These kids are our future. So at the end of the day, you just said it. We can can keep complaining about the corruption, the violence, broken aspects of society, the failure of the moral framework of this nation, or we can simply realign our efforts to start at the root to see a drastically different outcome when it comes to the fruit. I believe we can see our prisons emptied. I believe we can see our streets having way less homeless individuals. I can see us moving away from the need of child welfare altogether and it looking drastically different, but we need everyone to do it. So thank you for the time, Jess, and being able to just share what we're, we've been doing and it's been fun.
0: That's awesome. Okay. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening.